0: And let's take our Bibles. We will turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Now, the last couple of uh, sermons that we've done in the book of Hebrews, they've been a little rough. They have really challenged us in our Christian living. And you know, it's important for us as believers to be stretched, to have those challenges. But it's also important that we find encouragement in the Word of God, and that's what we find this morning. We find the encouragement of hope brought so clearly here in Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. The writer of Hebrews gives us a clear picture of the security that we have in the promise of God. That's our hope. That's what we want to understand this morning. You no know, a lot of us look to different things for hope. Until recently probably some of us looked at our jobs as something that's secure that we could hope in. And then a bad turn in the economy and what happens we look and we find how fleeting that hope can be. Some of us hoped in our education. We were promised to go to college and when you get out of college the world's your oyster. Crack it open and get the goods. And then what do you find? Not so much. Now not only do I not have a job, but I have school loans to pay. Very frustrating. Some people find hope in relationships. And they look and they say, this person will be my friend forever, and then that person changes or that person dies and we lose them. And if we attach our hope to that Where are we? You see, for hope to work, it has to be unchangeable. You can't hope in something that changes because if you're hoping in something that changes, what happens when it does? What happens when what you've been counting on is no longer available? In the Word of God, we find a hope that never changes, because it's a hope that's based in the changeless God. And that's what we want to see this morning. We can have a secure hope. We don't have to have a hope like these blocks here that are ready to teeter at any moment. We can have a hope that is solid and secure, one that is described in this passage as an anchor for the soul. Isn't that a great promise? We can have an anchor for our soul. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6, starting at the ninth verse. And what we want to see are three important truths about the security of our hope. And it begins in the ninth verse. You know, as we come to the ninth verse, the scripture talks about an encouragement to us to remain faithful and to have a full assurance of hope. This is kind of like the cheerleading part of this passage, it's sharing with us the ultimate goal. That we should have a hope that actually changes our lives. One that is encouraging to us. One that produces a difference in us that's observable by other people. So look at what the ninth verse says. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. Now if you remember, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8... Probably not one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture because it challenges us. It shares with us that if I am a follower of God, then it ought to evidence itself in my life. And if I am not where I need to be in my relationship with God, then I'm going to suffer consequences in my life. Really, from the fifth chapter through, the first part of the sixth chapter, there's that warning time and again. But when we come to verse 9, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, this may be true, but I expect better things of you. You see, the people that the writer of Hebrews was addressing were genuine believers. And the normal thing for a believer is to have a life that evidences salvation. Notice again what's being said here in the ninth verse. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. You know, when I was in school, if I had a teacher that expected the class to really do poorly, and they communicated that to us very often, we lived up to the expectation. We did poorly. Because that was the expectation. But when you get one of those rare teachers that would come in and inspire you to do better and expect it of you, usually you would deliver. This is what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us. And by the way, this is the inspired word of God. So this is what God is saying to us. I expect better of you. I expect to see you live the Christian life. And that's an expectation that we want to meet, isn't it? We want to live a life that is pleasing to God. We want to live a life that meets the expectations communicated in the Word of God. And what we want to do is to have a life that demonstrates that we have been saved. Now I want you to think about what that means. Things that accompany salvation. What are the things that accompany salvation? Faith? Obedience? Things that accompany salvation is a difference from the world. It means that we don't share the same values, outlook, or behavior as the world. We have a responsibility as those who have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, to have a life that backs up the commitment. Those are the things that accompany salvation. And this is what God wants to see every believer experience, every believer demonstrate to the world and to our fellowship. We demonstrate those things to the world that they might see the difference and want to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we demonstrate that character to our congregation, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to inspire them to live those lives that have things that accompany salvation. This is what God calls us to. But then, as the text goes on, we're exhorted to imitate the faithful for a full assurance of hope. Look at what the tenth verse of this passage goes on to say. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. Now there's a mouthful in that thought. But I want us to think about what's being communicated. First of all, there's an assurance here. God is not unjust. A lot of times we think of the justice of God pertaining to punishment, don't we? We think in terms that if a person doesn't do what's right, the justice of God will see that they are disciplined, punished for what they have done that is wrong. But you know, the justice of God also works this way according to this passage. When God sees us do what is right, God by His justice also rewards us. Have you ever thought about that? If God is just, He will not only punish the wicked, but He will reward the righteous. And so the scripture in this passage is reminding us that when we do what is right, when we are serving God and serving others, and that's what this passage is talking about, God takes notice. Sometimes when we do what is right, it feels like we're kind of alone, doesn't it? It feels like I'm the only one. It feels like maybe no one's noticing. What this passage assures us of is there is one who always sees, who always knows. You don't want to go around and toot your own horn about the good that you do. But you know what? You don't have to. Because God knows. And really, in the final analysis, isn't He the only one that counts? So what if somebody else, flesh and blood, sees the good that I do? When the Creator, my Savior, God, sees what I do and takes note of it and will ultimately reward it, That's what's truly important, and that's what this passage is bringing out, the importance of understanding that God will not forget the work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped other people. Now, I think there's an important point that we see in this verse as well. Sometimes we divide things into serving God and serving others, right? You know what? Really, it's one and the same. Did you notice in this text it says that you are serving Him as you serve others? The Word of God is bringing out to us an important point. When we do the work of God, even in helping others, it's really God that we're serving. And we need to understand that. We need to get a grasp on that. God sees it. God knows it. God rewards it. But then look at the 11th verse. In the 11th verse, the Scripture goes on to say, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. The Scripture is sharing with us that as we are doing good, it's not a little sprint here and a little sprint here where we do good and the rest of the time we don't really do a whole lot. There's a diligence that needs to be shown. There's a consistency that needs to take place. God wants us to be consistent in serving Him As we serve others, God wants to see a commitment on our part that takes energy. And that's the idea of diligence. Diligence is a word that means devotion to a task. It means an eagerness to do something. God wants us to have that kind of eagerness as we serve. And notice what the 11th verse goes on to say. As we have this endurance to the very end... Now, the NIV translates the last part of the 11th verse, we will make our hope sure. Now, I don't really care for the way the NIV translates this verse. Usually they get it pretty good. But this can be misconstrued. You could read this to mean that as you do the right performance, you ensure your hope that it will come about. That is wrong thinking. That's not what's being communicated. I really like the way the New American Standard and the English Standard Version translate this a little better. Look at what they say. We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. They translate it realize instead of make sure. And then the English Standard. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So what's being communicated really? Really? What it's saying is this, if you really want to understand your hope, service to God and service to others, ultimately to God, helps us understand the hope that we have in a deeper and fuller and richer way. If you really want to understand hope, you can't be sitting on the sidelines You can't be dabbling in your service to God. You deepen your assurance of hope as you deepen your service to God. That's the point of this passage. So that's why it's so important that as believers we engage in some sort of ministry. If we want to truly Plumb the depths of the hope that God gives us, we ought to be busy serving Him to appreciate that hope even more. And then, right at the last part of this paragraph, we come to the 12th verse. And in the 12th verse, we find that the writer of Hebrews is saying, We don't want you to become lazy. Now, why would he put that word in here? Why would he say, we don't want you to be lazy? As human beings, isn't it easy to get distracted? Isn't it easy to just sort of slough off? You know, we'll find this in our church attendance, for instance. We miss, and it becomes easier to miss again, and to miss again, and to miss again. And before you know it, you have a whole string of Services that you've missed. We find it in our prayer life and devotions, don't we? Miss a day, miss a couple days, miss a week. It's easy to become negligent, lazy in doing those things. And yes, we even find it in our service to the Lord. Well, you know, I've I've served a lot lately and uh, I'm kind of tired, so, uh, you know, I'm going to Just take it easy for a while and just really not do anything in the way of service. Now, there's a place where we need to rest, but there's also a place where it becomes negligence to where we are letting those things go. So, the charge to us and the charge to the people that the writer of Hebrews was writing to is don't let that happen. Remain diligent, don't become lazy. And in order to not become lazy, look at what he suggests, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Think about this for a moment. Some of us learn best by looking at examples. Now, we don't want to take a person and set them up on a pedestal and say that this person is my hero my role model, and build all of our faith and hope in this person because people will let us down. But there's nothing wrong with finding somebody who is an example of faithfulness and saying, as he follows Christ, I will follow him. Sometimes as human beings, we need to see these things fleshed out, lived out. We need to think about those examples of faithfulness and follow them. And you know, as we come to this text, this is what the writer of Hebrews is suggesting. Look at the Word of God as we come to the 13th verse. And when we come to the 13th verse, we see an example of one who is faithful. And that example is someone that every one of the Hebrews would have appreciated. That example is Abraham. Abraham. Now, why would the Hebrews have appreciated Abraham? Because he was the father of the whole race. He was the founder. He was the one that God had called out of Ur of the Chaldees and had found him faithful and had blessed him. And he was the one through whom ultimately the Messiah would come. We find that Abraham is an example of faithfulness because look at what the 13th verse says. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, He swore by Himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Here the Word of God is holding the example of Abraham as a person of faithfulness. Why? Because Abraham believed God. The event that is being alluded to in this passage is the event of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Now you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham had one son, almost 100 years old, when he and Sarah had this son. So Abraham probably viewed this as his one shot at finding the promises of God fulfilled. And what did God do? God told Abraham to take his one and only son, and that means his unique son. He also had a son by the handmaiden, Hagar. But to take this unique son, the son of promise, the son of his hope, and sacrifice him. Now, we all know the story. We know that the sacrifice didn't happen, that God would never have allowed human sacrifice. But Abraham didn't know that. So the faith that it took to follow this direct command from God, amazing faith, real perseverance. Can you imagine what Abraham went through as he was walking to Mount Moriah and then scaling that mountain with his son, all the while knowing that he was to sacrifice this treasured one this one that was really all of his hope to find the promise of God. An amazing story. In fact, the 14th verse really is a quotation from Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, where after Abraham takes Isaac to this mountain to sacrifice him, And the angel of the Lord stops him in mid-stroke, intending to sacrifice Isaac. God rewards the faith and the perseverance of Abraham. And He says this, I will surely bless you. Make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This was a promise that God made to Abraham, an unconditional promise. And so Abraham trusted God, and the idea is he received what was promised. Look at the 15th verse. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received... Now the NIV says what was promised... A better translation is found once again in the New American Standard or the English Standard and it just says he received the promise. And there's an important distinction that needs to be made here. Abraham never saw the full weight of the promise of God. Look at the 18th verse. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. What does that mean? What is that text referring to? How through the relative's of Abraham, would all nations be blessed? The answer is in one descendant. And we know Him as Jesus Christ. Through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, all nations are blessed because He brings salvation. He brings hope to anyone. Anyone who turns to Him in faith has a relationship with the Father, and is blessed through this promise that God gave thousands of years ago to Abraham. So the Word of God is telling us here in this passage that Abraham counted on the promise of God. God had promised him before that his descendants would be as the stars or as the sand on the seashore. And here he is sacrificing Isaac, and that promise is reaffirmed But something's added to it, the promise of a seed. And so Abraham had a hope that was based on the very promise of God, and the strength of that hope is brought out in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, because in that 11th chapter, the Scripture says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. And then look at the 19th verse. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's amazing faith, isn't it? Abraham never saw a resurrection. He'd never even heard of a resurrection And yet, as he was being obedient to God and he was marching up that hill, as he laid Isaac on the altar, as he raised the knife to take his life, he counted on the promise of God so much that he said, even if I strike him dead, God will raise him. That's counting on the promise of God. Counting on that with hope. This is what Abraham did. And so, the Word of God is telling us We need to understand the importance of hope and trust in God just as the forefather Abraham understood these things. We need to count on them. But then the text continues. As we come to the 16th verse, we find that God goes to a great extent in order to assure people of His hope. God had said to Abraham that he swore. And notice back in the 13th verse, it says he swore by himself. As we come to the 16th verse, it's almost as though the writer of Hebrews is looking at this text and he's saying, I, I can't believe the-, the lengths that God will go to to assure us of hope. Because he talks about what it means to swear about something. He says in verse 16, men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Okay, here's the idea. Think of this in terms of a contract. When you reach an agreement with somebody and you write out the contract and you sign on the dotted line, what does that mean about the contract? It means you have to honor the terms of what you've signed and there's no renegotiating. You don't come in and say, well, you know, it says that, but what I really meant was, you know, that doesn't count, right? The contract's the contract. You do what you have signed for, agreed to. An oath during the time in which the Scripture was written was just as binding as that contract. You would enter into that oath, you would swear, by one who was greater than yourselves normally. But here's the thing. When God made his oath he didn't swear by one greater because who's greater than god god swore by himself verse 13 then we come to verse 17 because god wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised he confirmed it with an oath now when god says something The very fact that God said it means it's true. God did not have to confirm what he said with an oath. God will not renege on what he's promised. As a matter of fact, it's so clear in the scripture. The book of Numbers shares this with us. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God never changes. When God promises something, and, and even when God says something, that's the way it is. So God swearing wasn't because God needed that extra push to fulfill it. When God made the promise to Abraham and He swore on it, He did it for Abraham and ultimately the heirs of Abraham, us. So that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to deliver on His promise. That's the idea of this passage. No doubt whatsoever. Look at verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope offered may be greatly encouraged. Now, here's where this applies to us. The same God who made the promise to Abraham is the God who makes the promise to us of our salvation. That just as Abraham was justified by faith and found the promises of God, when we come to God by faith and find those promises, they will be as surely delivered to us. Now you let that settle in for a moment. If you've drifted away, drift back. And I want you to think about what this means for us. The promise of God is the security of our hope. We don't have to base it on feelings. We don't have to base it on our personal performance. All that we are, all that we hope for, we base on the promise of God. That is our security. That is what causes us to stand That is what we look toward. Just as Abraham looked toward it, we're to look toward it as well with as much tenacity, with as much steadfastness as Abraham had. God wants us to be people who are encouraged by His promise. And then we come to the last part of the passage. As we come to verses 19 and following, we find the excellence of our hope. And we find that the hope that we have is established as firm and secure. It's an anchor for the soul. You know, I shared once before that Rhett and I got a new boat and we had a plastic anchor when we first got the boat. So windy conditions, not so much. Didn't work too good. Kind of floated instead of sunk. Didn't grip on anything. It was a placebo anchor, (laughs) and it really didn't do much. So we went out, and we hunted, and we finally found an anchor that's a nice, solid anchor that has things that dig into the sand, and now we can plant that puppy, and the boat doesn't budge. As a matter of fact, it will get swamped with water before that anchor lets loose. The Word of God is telling us in verse 19 that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is an anchor for the soul. Now let's review what it means to hope. Hope is not looking at something and investing wishful thinking toward the outcome. Hope is a confident expectation that what I'm looking toward will deliver on what I'm trusting. That's the idea of hope. And so what the Word of God is telling us in this 19th verse, it's such a powerful verse, what it's telling us is the hope that we have in the fulfillment of the promise of God, the hope of our salvation, the promise that if I believe in Jesus Christ, God will see me through to the end. That hope is an anchor for the soul. Everything else in life can shift and change, let go. Everything else is a plastic anchor. It's not real. It's not designed to grab hold and hang on. But the promise of God, that's an anchor of substance and it's an anchor for the soul. I love the way this phrase is this. The soul is that part of us that continues after the body and the material thing is gone. The soul is that part of us that has that relationship with God that is made new and fresh. The soul of us needs an anchor. We need one that is sure and steady and strong. And that's what God gives us, this firm and secure anchor. The word firm in the original language means unshakable. God wants us to understand that His promise to us is indeed firm. It won't let go because the promise is made by God and God doesn't change. God can't change. God won't change. So when you trust God with your soul, you have substance. Isn't that a great reminder? The world around us is messed up. We see hurt. We see people doing things that are despicable. We see people fail us and let us down. We have an anchor for the soul that won't let go. That's the anchor of God's promise. We can be encouraged by that, but look at what it, what else it says here in the nineteenth verse. After this passage talks about the anchor for the soul, it talks about the person behind the promise, and that's Jesus Christ. Notice the next phrase there in the nineteenth verse. After it talks about our hope and an anchor, it gives us two images. The first image is that of a high priest. And notice it says this. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The idea is this, the picture is that of the temple. And in the temple there was a holy of holies that only the high priest could enter. And that was where sin was dealt with. Our hope rests in our high priest, Jesus Christ, who went into the holy of holies and paid for our sin forever. That's the anchor for our soul. That's the hope that we have. The hope rests in Jesus and what He did, not in us and what we can do. So that's the strength of it. But I want you to look carefully at the 20th verse. And it says here where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. What's being pictured here is something that was done with anchors in the first century. When a ship would come into harbor, they didn't just drop anchor. What they would do is have men go out in a smaller boat with the anchor and then hover over a secure place, maybe a reef, maybe some rocks, and drop anchor right in that secure place. They wanted to find the optimum place to put that anchor. So you know what this text is telling us? This is what Jesus has done with our hope, the hope that we've placed with Him. He has put it in a secure place. He has gone before us and put it in the safest place of all, in that place with God. He's our forerunner. He's the person in that boat that takes the anchor and puts it in that secure place. That's what Jesus has done for you and for me. So there's great encouragement in this. The knowledge that our hope rests in Jesus Christ is a hope that we can hold on to, a hope that we should never let go of, because Jesus serves as our priest forever. He saves us forever. What a precious promise we find in this text. This morning, I'm sure there are many, many situations that many, many of you are in. Perhaps you've been disappointed by someone. Perhaps things aren't so great at work and you're wondering, wow, you know, what's going to happen next? Maybe you're in a marriage that's struggling and you're wondering, where's this going to go? Maybe your whole life is about to change. I can't know all of your situations, but God does. But here's the thing. As uncertain and as crazy as life gets, this isn't where we put our hope. Our hope has been taken by Christ Jesus into the holiest place in heaven and secured there. We're tethered to heaven by the anchor of our hope. So let me encourage you, with all of the unsettling things around you, remember the anchor, the anchor for the soul, firm and secure, because our Lord has put it in a place of security. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that it is a reminder to us all that though things are crazy and uncertain in every area of our life, potentially, there's one area that we need not be concerned about, and that's the area of our hope and our faith in the promises of God. Lord, may each of us know in a new and full and rich way what it means to have this as the anchor for our souls. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who has never placed their faith in Christ Jesus, my prayer is that they would even today find that anchor for their soul that they can cling to, that they can find fulfillment in. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.